Welcome to Scholar Tea this week. I am Cameron Carl. And this is Shauna. And we are scholars ready to give you all the tea. All of it. So today we're going to uh, describe our mood as if it were a supervisor. So basically the block is hot. <laughs> I'm aggressive, aggressive. I don't have a filter. I give no Fs. I'm out here snatching red staplers and putting baby in the corner. I don't care if you want a window in your office. Like, I'm going to board it up with wood and put shrubs in your seats. Not shrubs. Yeah. (laughs) I am a text you at 7.30 a.m. No, text you at 6.30 a.m. Work from home today. (laughs) Text me when your tasks are completed. Meet me at happy hour at 5. So? All right, ready for some fun today? Are we? (laughs) We're not gonna talk about my anger management issues. (laughs) I thought it was (laughs) self-explanatory. I mean, it was very—it was kind of aggressive. Oh, I mean, I'm concerned about the people you supervise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm saying, but that's my mood, though. It's not like you know my actual supervisory style. Okay, that's not how you show up in the space. Oh, not at all. I feel like I'm very tender, caring, loving. I love your glasses. I haven't said that yet. Oh, thank you. Sean has on some very interesting, like the way they your cheekbones are popping. Mm. I'm really enjoying these glasses. Mm. It makes me look like I don't need some sun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, see what you did there. All right, so today's episode, folks, of course, we have a Scala of the Week. We are going to highlight doctoral student Rosa Clemente. We have some topics. Um, I have one that's kind of been on my heart. It's a little serious, but I wanted to use this space to share it. Um, so I want to talk about grief in the mm-hmm. academy and what that looks like and how that has been showing up. Um, I'm excited about our interview with Professor E. Patrick Johnson um, because in some ways he contributed, inspired the title of our show. So we're going to have an engaging conversation with him. We are going to spill a little tea about some recent tweets that have been happening in the tweet storm. People are wondering whether or not a PWI is an appropriate place to talk about HBCU research. Mm. <laughs> um, we're going to obviously highlight what's problematic, them jokes of the week, and we're going to send you home with some inspiration. So should we get to it? We should. Our Scholar of the Week this week is Rosa Clemente, a native of the South of Bronx, 
who has spent her life dedicated to scholar activism. She is currently a doctoral student in the W. Du Bois Department at UMass Amherst. Throughout her scholarly career, Rosa has been a constant on the ground presence through the many political struggles facing Black and Latinx people in the 21st century. Rosa is a president and founder of Know Thyself Productions, which has produced four major community activism tours and consults on issues such as hip-hop activism, media justice, voter engagement among youth of color, third-party politics, intercultural relationships between Black and Latinx immigrant rights and extension of human rights and universal health care. She is a frequent guest on television, radio, and online media, as her opinion on critical current events is widely sought after. Shout out to you, Rosa Clemente. The future doctor. The future doctor. So our discussion um, this week, I don't think it's a hot topic, Mm -mm. but it's a topic I I would like to talk about this. Mm -hmm. She's like, sure, Um, (laughs) because in some ways, I think we both are doing this and have done this in in ways. So I want to talk about navigating grief in the Academy. I think by the time this episode drops, it would be probably early June and first anniversary of my of my mother's passing. Um, And I've been very reflective this year and thinking about grief, right, like just navigating grief, what grief has looked like how the Academy is not built for those navigating grief. Um, And I'll explain that here in a second. For me, it's a loss of a parent. It could be any loss, right? People have lost children. People have lost siblings. People have lost close mentors. People have lost pets. People have lost students. There was an interesting kind of tweet thread, if you don't mind me reading through Mm -hmm. it really quick, that got me thinking about how am I showing up in my grief in in the Academy? And this is from Ashante M. Reese, Twitter handle amreese07. On teaching liberation in the classroom and the death of a student. I had gone out to sit on my porch to journal and had been out there for hours because I didn't feel led to move yet. I told a different friend I felt like I was holding space for my student who I knew was dying and wasn't sure how long that would be. Someone told me I couldn't stay out on my porch all night and I promised her I wouldn't. I texted her at 9.59 p.m. saying I was going inside. This morning, I learned that my student took her last breath at 10 p.m. I believe she knew I was holding her as so many others were too. I do not know if devastated was the right word. She was the first student who walked into my office in 2015 wanting to talk to me about her health challenges and assure me that she was not looking for sympathy. She was the first student to specifically request me as her advisor. And from that point on, we worked closely together, having class via Skype when she was too ill to come to class, talking on the phone or texting almost weekly to keep in touch. Two weeks ago, we went to dinner. She allowed me to record our conversation because she said she wanted me to write about it. I learned about her illness and what, at the time, we thought her last year of life would look like. She thought she had more time. We never have more time. In Teaching to Transgress, Bell Hooks says that in order for teaching to be deliberatory, there has to be self-actualization on both sides that both teacher and student have to be engaged in creating space for liberation. It has to be multidirectional. That is what I am considering in this moment, what liberatory teaching offers in the way of dealing with a student's death. I loved her fiercely, and I have no doubt that she loved me and so many others the same. As if there is any solace or redemption, it is in that love through the ways we engage each other and the permission she gave for me to be ultimately connected to her life. One of my students in my 9.25 a.m. class came up to the podium and asked, how are you? I said, I'm struggling. And then I burst into tears. What I know today is that this is what liberatory teaching looks like in the wake of death. I cried and my students held space. And then I told them I loved them. 
and then I went to get myself together and we had a class. Teaching for or to liberation is not only for my students, it's for me too. My heart is breaking, but thankfully my students, colleagues, and friends have enough space to hold it together until it mends itself. Rest well, Nikki. You prepared us as best you could. Now we live in the love that you shared with us. It just resonated um, so well, be thinking about when does grief show up? How does grief show up? Grief does not make an appointment of when it happens and when it shows up. And I know you feel this with the loss of a parent, but I could be in class and we could be talking about something and someone says something and it's something my mother would say or it's something that reminds me of her. And I have to like, okay, you know, keep it together or recenter or whatever the case might be. And it just has me thinking about all those times and moments when we can't or when we don't feel comfortable enough to admit what's happening with us and with grief. The other thing about the academy is it can be a lonely place when thinking about. So people are there immediately when something happens and with condolences and offering support and people are extremely understanding and caring, but not fully thinking about the ways that grief happen months, years after, right? And the processing that has to happen. And those are just some of the things that I've been thinking about. The other two things that come along with grief that nobody talks about is guilt and shame. And those are two things that I've been trying to process through in therapy, right? Like I wasn't physically present when my mother passed away and there's guilt that comes up for me for that and how that guilt then manifests in my teaching, in my relationships with my friends, in my relationships with my family and the shame also, right? Like there's shame that like, did I show up as a son in all the ways that I needed to for my mother and all the ways I might have needed to for those of you that have lost a friend or for those of you that have lost a colleague, right? Like I think there's some shame that is also a part of the grief process that we haven't opened up space to have candid conversations about. Hmm. What are you thinking? I, I have a very interesting relationship with death anyway I think at this point in my life uh abnormally so and so it's become for lack of a better term it's become routinized for me mm. and so I've noticed that I can be more present for people experiencing it than I can for myself mm -hmm. because I can empathize with the person mm -hmm. I clearly see that you're in pain and that makes me feel pain too. But as for me and my processing of what happens for folks that are near me, close to me, or like within the periphery, right? Colleagues, you know, who are passing or the spouses of colleagues or the children of colleagues or students and students' parents, it doesn't hit me the same way that it did 10 years ago, mm -hmm. unfortunately. I know they have these individuals, they're called death doulas, who actually try to humanize the experience of death. Really? Um, and it's been something I've been thinking about more recently in terms of a practice that I could pick up mm -hmm. because I think it's gotten to the point now for me that it's so part of life that I can appreciate like the day-to-day -day moments and appreciate the day-to-day -day moments with individuals. And I do grieve, you know, I feel yeah. sadness, but it does not manifest the way that it used to because I've just seen so much loss, you know? So there's that. And then the other thing I've been thinking about more recently is just how do you appropriately support someone that you know is in pain? Mm -hmm. And I've gotten really good at not saying the wrong thing. I feel, you know, well, let me know if you need anything. You can't do anything for for me, right? And I don't know what I need. <laughs> right, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I know how you feel. I, I've stopped it, saying that. Yeah. But I, but I used to say that all the time. Oh, yeah. You know? And now I say, like, what I think you're feeling is familiar to yeah. me, right? Like, I've been saying that more. Mm -hmm. Just trying to be mindful and offering myself up as 
you know, a space of care and concern and also just letting you know that I'm there and not feeling offended if you don't take me up on it, right? Like I will find other ways to show that I care for you or that I'm there for you. And trying to do that as a professional in a field where it can be isolating, I can imagine is very challenging. And then also trying to be that support for maybe students or colleagues who are going through similar experiences, maybe even simultaneously while you're living through it, and trying to find ways to, to create some reflective space for yourself is really necessary. So I wholly advocate, like you said, like you utilize a therapist, like I wholly advocate utilizing professional services. And I would also recommend for those that haven't thought about it, I think utilizing a death doula for extreme situations, but also just to like... That's new to me. So I appreciate you sharing sharing that because I wasn't familiar. Yeah, it, it just, it makes uncomfortable conversations about something that is a part of our lives a little more easier to navigate. And you can do it with that person or you can do it with a collective. Some people do it with their spouse to try and normalize some of those conversations that are known to be taboo, mm-hmm. particularly as it relates to death. So me and my siblings might need to do that. I was mm-hmm. thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know some people have those conversations when they're thinking through living wills and whatnot, but this goes a little deeper and it talks about the emotional aspects of it, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Love you. Love you, too. Thank you for being there this mm-hmm. past year. Because you showed up in ways that you I don't think you even know that you showed up, but you were there. So thank you. So this week in Scholar Tea, we are welcoming Professor E. Patrick Johnson to spend some time with us. Welcome. Would you mind sharing the people kind of what you want them to know about you? Oh, there's so much. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of doing the traditional academic thing and saying where I teach and all that, you know, probably I should share something that people may not know about me. And that is I love soap operas. Mm. Ooh, what's your favorite one? Well, you know, there are only three left now. <laughs> they've been taken off the air, but one of my secret rituals is after a long day of work, teaching or, or writing, I watch The Young and the Rest. Oh, th- my, my grandmother has watched that for 40, <laughs> 50 years. Yeah, I have too. <laughs> <laughs> like the traditional soap operas. Mm. Yeah. The Victor yes, Newman's I Jack love, Abbott's. Okay. Love, love. <laughs> Escaping into, you know, another world. It's totally predictable. It's totally trash. And I love every bit of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> they do some good acting, though. Some of those, they can cry on the drop of a dime. Oh, they're great. <laughs> Would you argue, though, that, like, love and hip-hop is also a soap opera? Well, you know, most, quote, reality TV is a soap opera. <laughs> so, yes. I would. Mm-hmm. What you say? Same script writers, huh? <laughs> <laughs> would you mind sharing kind of your inspiration behind your book um, and the different versions of your stage play, Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South? Yeah. You know, this work is the work that keeps on giving. It's been so generative over the years, which I think speak to the richness of the stories themselves and of the men whose lives are shared in the work. This project came to me Oh my goodness, close to 25 years ago. And it's hard to believe that this is the 10-year anniversary of the book, of the publication of the book. When I think about that, I was like, wow, it's been 10 years. Uh, But anyway, 
The inspiration came from me attending an event in Washington, D.C. in 1995 that was sponsored by an HIV-AIDS group called Us Helping Us, People Into Living Incorporated. And that group, which is still in existence, I don't know if they still have it now, but they used to have a uh, summer cookout to celebrate all the great things that they had done during the year. And I had been invited to attend uh, with my ex. It wasn't my ex then, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, And we went to, we attended that cookout and there were a group of men older, you know, in their late 60s, early 70s, at a table nearby talking about, or I guess reminiscing about the good old days of growing up in the South and these fabulous parties and clubs. And I was like, what? I didn't know anything about this. I didn't, I didn't know this history. So I was like a little child, you know, sitting at their knee and you know, just absorbing all these stories. And I realized that nothing had been written about the lives of the black queer community in the South in particular. I made a decision in that moment that at some point I was going to do that work. And it took a while. It wasn't until 2002 that I was able to have the space and go back to the South to start collecting stories. And originally, I was going to include the stories of Black women. And like many things, the gay men just took it over. They just took over the whole project. So I interviewed 77 men, 63 made the book. The project was born. Hmm. In 2006, Two years before the book came out, I realized that the book was only going to be able to tell part of the story. And what I mean by that is there were so many uh, wonderful storytellers that I met, and there was no way that I was going to be able to reflect the richness of each man's storytelling style and all of the different nuances in terms of nonverbals and the different dialects and the different slang from each man. So I decided that this shouldn't just be a book. It should be a performance. At the time, I didn't realize or I didn't come to a conclusion about whether or not this was going to be a play that had several cast members and I would direct it or if I would perform it. And because I'm a very pragmatic person, I decided that because I'm not a good director and I hate directing, that I wasn't going to direct the show. But I think I'm a pretty good performer. So I decided that I would do a stage reading. And that is what became Pouring Tea, Black Gay Men of the South Tell Their Tales, which I have now toured to over probably 150 different college campuses, community centers, and so on. Pouring Tea was born actually two years before the book came out. In 2009, I was approached by Jane M. Sack, who at that current time used to be the executive director of a institute that has a very long title. <laughs> I don't even know if it's still around, but it was called the Ellen Stone Bellick Institute for the Study of Women and Gender in Arts and Media at Columbia College, Chicago. So a mouthful. I just called it the institute. She approached me about turning the stage reading into a full-length play. And that's what we did. She was the producer, and we collaborated with About Face Theater here in Chicago, which was the first LGBT theater company here in Chicago. And the, the play premiered now eight years ago in 2010 at 
the Viaduct Theater, and uh, it ran for about five weeks. Hmm. Then it went to University of Texas, Austin, and did a short run. And then the following year, the show was picked up at the Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia. That was a six-week run, eight shows a week. It almost killed me. Mm-hmm. Each of those iterations was with a different director. The show morphed each time. It got shorter, like the premiere here in Chicago was two and a half hours with mm. the intermission. And then the final version was a 80-minute version. And the other thing that happened over the course of all of those iterations was my story as a black gay man, as a researcher, as a scholar, uh, became more central to the play. And so my story is sort of the through line uh, connecting each of the men's stories. So the conceit is that the more I listen to and hear their stories, the more I'm empowered to tell my own. Mm. So that's sort of like a very long answer to your question, but it had so many different iterations from the book, the stage reading to the play, and we can talk a little later. It's going to be a documentary. Mm. Have you picked your director already? I didn't pick the director. The director picked me. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, John Jackson, who is a dean and professor of anthropology at Penn, is the director of the documentary. We hope to be done by the fall. Um, so from your perspective, how do you think current events textualize your work? Even though these interviews were conducted over a decade ago, a lot of the themes that are covered in these narratives are pertinent today. It really amazes me, for instance, the impact that these stories still have, particularly with younger queer people around coming out, around issues with parents. They find themselves in the the stories. I know I found myself in, in many of the stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though I feel in some ways we've made a lot of progress around marriage equality, there's now a growing trans movement, gender nonconformity. Even with all of those things, there are still a lot of issues that our communities are dealing with. And I think that some of the stories that these men share speak to those issues that they don't necessarily go away just because we've made a little social progress. There's still concerns in the current political environment where a lot of the progress that we made under the previous administration are now being rolled back. Now more than ever, we need the voices of these men to speak truth to power. So I think that a number of these um, narratives have a lot to say about our current moment. Mm. We are really interested in getting your thoughts around ways that communities um, holding and nurturing queer men of color have been used to shape popular culture over the past kind of four four decades. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, whether society in general has been willing to acknowledge it or not, our communities have always played a prime role in shaping popular culture, whether it's the last 40 decades, we can go back Mm. further than that. Mm -hmm. To the 40s, for instance, someone like Gladys Bentley, who was a gender nonconforming singer, who was a cis woman, but performed as a drag king for many years. Gladys Bentley actually appears as a cover story of Gladys in a 1950s issue of Ebony Magazine. The ballroom culture that we now celebrate through films like Kiki or uh, before that, Paris is Burning, Mm -hmm. those ball scenes were around years before then. 
that was known for female impersonation, uh, and particularly among black communities. And of course, these things existed, but no one really talked about it. But all of it shaped popular culture. Even, you know, people are really fascinated with RuPaul's drag race. Well, before there was RuPaul, there was Flip Wilson, who did drag as the character Geraldine in the early 70s. And it was a very popular show. We have always, our communities, the, the kinds of performances and aesthetics that our communities have created have always influenced popular culture. And sometimes in not so good ways. You know, I've, I've actually written about the sketch that appeared on In Living Color in the 90s, mm. All Men On, where the snap Mm-hmm. that was cultivated by black gay men was appropriated by David Allen Greer and Marlon Wayans to parody uh, black gay men. The the influence on popular culture has not always been a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's been used to stigmatize and make light of our culture. And what does it mean to you from your perspective to spill tea as a black scholar? Well, you know, when you look in the urban dictionary under sage or sadeology, you find E.P. Johnson. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) But in all seriousness, I'm really dedicated to speaking truth out, even if it means calling out some of our own, but not in a way that's salacious or in a way that is about personal attack. I'm not here for that. But engaging discourse that is disparaging or engaging practices, even within our own communities that are unproductive or not helpful, I think we have to call it out. For instance, misogyny in gay male communities is a big issue. Transphobia within our communities is a big issue. Class is a big issue in our communities. And I think those kinds of concerns, we have to address them. And again, it's not about being salacious or sensational. It's about keeping our own feet to the fire around issues that pertain to all of our communities. If we don't work together, then we'll be divided and conquered. Mm -hmm. That's why it's really important, I think, that we think about a coalitional politic rather than a single-issue politics. So, you know, as a cisgender, black, gay man, I have to contend with my male privilege. I also have to contend with my middle-class status. I have to contend with being an academic and all the privileges that that platform provides me that is not provided to others. And always make sure that I am conscious and aware those uh, privileges that I have. So the last thing we love to do with our guest is that we love to do this thing called a speed round. And with the speed round, we are going to give you two options and you have to choose the one that comes to mind first um, that you would select. Um, So we ask that you not deliberate or take time, but that you move through it quickly. Okay. All right. So first question, leather or suede? Leather. Earth, Wind, and Fire, or Frankie, Beverly, and the Maze? What was the first option? Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. Atlanta or Chicago? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> uh, Chicago. Childish Gambino or Kendrick Lamar? Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. Vivian Banks or Claire Huxtable? Mm, Vivian. Which, which, which first? One? First Vivian or second Vivian? <laughs> 
<laughs> Spill the tea or low key shade? Oh, low key shade. Mm. Well, that's all we have. Um, we really appreciate you taking a moment out of this beautiful day to speak with us and allowing us to build upon your scholarship with our work. If it weren't for your contributions to the field, we wouldn't be able to do some of the things that we've been focusing on. So we really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. And, and thank you for having me on the show. Uh, come on anytime. Oh, great. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. So let's spill some tea. Uh, and, and first I'll start just because I think it's cute. Someone sent me a screen grab of Chrissy Teigen, of a Chrissy Teigen tweet, because I think she's great. And it turns out we kind of think alike. The quote read, everyone keeps asking me to comment on shit. Comment on psycho Tammy Lasagna, who I refuse to give joy to. Say something about Real Housewives of Atlanta. Speak up for Kanye. When it comes to people we know, we do speak up. To them, not on Twitter. Sometimes I guess it makes it on Twitter. I thought that was funny. Another screen grab sent to us was of a tweet by Tahir A. Duckett, which showed two tweets, one by John Legend, which read, I imagine there's some comfort in imagining a future without racism and projecting that onto the present, thinking if we just deny the truth that doesn't exist, if history is erased, we don't have to deal with its consequences. However... And the second tweet right next to it was Ice-T, which read, This N-word, what the fuck? Tahir's conclusion was, you know, I'm inspired to be like John Legend. Half the time I end up sounding like Ice-T. I thought that was funny because, like, I have these aspirational moments when I want to be enlightened and uh, sound really knowledgeable. And then at the end of the day, my baseline instincts come out. Well, someone else reached out to us and shared the following meme from HBCU Digest. So... In hashtag Digest After Dark, we've been talking about how certain PWIs are given this platform to be the center and authority on HBCU research. And frankly, we're over it. So we are currently discussing which HBCU should champion this cause. Question, which institution should be the center of research on HBCUs? T'Challa. I can't help it. (laughs) Instead of T'Challa. Okay. At <laughs> no, at PhD Tosh wrote, "Ooh, I know. Starts with a how and ends with an R." Hashtag #Howard. At Macola Abdullah chimed in, "The Virginia State University hashtag #VSU transforms hashtag #VSU excellence." At I'm so TSU added, "I agree. I still don't know why I spent my grad school years being assigned case studies of Fortune 500 companies and Ivy League institutions." analyzing their issues of growth, profitability, and efficiency, when our case study solutions could have been directed within our own HBCU. I know JSU and Howard are in the higher Carnegie classification together over the latter two, if I'm not mistaken, so I'll make those to my front runners. However, I would also say Prairie View with their new president, who's had experience at Brown, plus has TAMU for any financial turbulence. 
JM underscore Moss wrote, Jackson State, because of their PhD in urban higher education, and you can include Howard, offers a PhD in higher education, Tennessee State and Morgan State, because they offer an EDD in higher education. And then another lovely colleague kind of just missed the boat and was like, Penn or Indiana State University. They didn't read or they, I'm sorry, they didn't comprehend what they read, maybe. The, mm. I don't know. Or were they intentionally throwing shade? I I think maybe they just missed the <laughs> point. <laughs> so I think that's a big point, though. Like, we are a minoritized population, but we have a very powerful voice. We have mission-driven, Black-centered institutions meant to uplift our ability to acquire higher education and attain a higher education, why aren't we then seen as the fronters of our own experiences at HBCUs in particular? Like, why is it that a PWI would be considered the go-to for that? It's also an example of the continued perpetuation of colonization in higher education. Mm -hmm. But some would argue, some HBCU graduates, administrators, presidents would argue that these institutions have the resources to do some of the research that they're immediately calling for and needing. I just wonder if you were that invested in that work, then why wouldn't you just make sure it happened where it was supposed to be? Am I asking? Well, now. (laughs) I'm just saying. There's that. If that was actually the intent and the investment in making sure that we were centering black voices, then why wouldn't we work to do that instead? And sometimes that's just not the intent. Well, okay, so some folks were making mention that there are um, several institutions that would not be interested in pursuing this line of research, that they would prefer as HBCUs to center on economies that can demonstrate what I think was being inferred was they're more interested in economies that produce finances, not seeing the value in what HBCU research could provide. But I think what they were really saying was, you know, gearing it more towards industries of study that could produce a high yield financial return. I'm hearing that that's also the argument and why having a foundation that HBCUs can turn to is fine rather than hosting it at an HBCU. I don't know what to do with that information, though, you know. So I guess what would propel that to happen? Like if that that was an actual call, what would need to take place for that to become? I think it's funding, right? I think it's funding and the and the researcher to set up the center or space or research agenda at said institution. And to my understanding, a lot of the funds that have been going or geared towards the HBCU center, I think that's what folks are really talking about. I do understand that the majority or preponderance of those funds were grant-based, though. Yeah. I mean, you need to have a relationship with those foundations in order to sustain and acquire those funds. But um, that's also something in addition to... But also, sorry, how do you leverage what HBCUs are currently doing and in pop culture in order to think about what funding might look like, right? So the show The Quad, right? Should BET be offering up some type of funding or fellowship to think about... HBCUs. Don't get me started on BET you know today. What you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I just... Should McDonald's, should uh, mm-hmm. Cadillac, who are these people that use HBCUs uh, in their marketing Joyner. campaigns? And What's that dude's Essence name? Essence Festival, um, Tom Joyner Music. Tom Joyner. Yeah. I don't know. I, I do think, though, back to my original point, if the intent is to actually really explore, examine, elevate these institutions, then placing the power in the hands of those institutions would be the first step. Mm-hmm. All right, so we ready? Uh Uh-huh. So what's problematic this week? And this has been happening for a while. And what's problematic this week is the pressure to define yourself as the hyphenated scholar. 
And what I mean by that is, um, like, for example, I teach in a higher ed student affairs program. So I'm supposed to come off as a scholar practitioner, right? So bringing my practice into my scholarship, my scholarship informing practice. I'm teaching people how to do that, right? But I'm, I'm hearing scholar activist. I'm hearing activist scholar. I'm hearing practitioner scholar. And people almost feeling like they have to define themselves hyphenated scholar, whether scholar is scholar coming first or scholar coming last. And then what does that tell people about you as far as how you prioritize the order of, of the word scholar, right? For me, that's problematic. Number one, not everyone sees themselves as a scholar. Number two, not everyone should see themselves as a scholar. <laughs> not to be shady, but number three, it then to me dilutes those that do see themselves in a hyphenated identity because everyone then is doing it. And I see that as problematic. I'm at an institution that's faculty driven Yeah. to the extent that, I mean, it's not something I personally identify as. Like, I, I don't necessarily say scholar practitioner. I think sometimes people amend that in my bio when they're uploading it to some oh, of the things. Oh, they, they edit themselves? I think. Sometimes Ooh. I've noticed that. Uh, and I'm like, oh, well, I said I was the director of the Davis Center. I didn't say I was a scholar practitioner, but okay, cool. But something that resonates with me, I'm fine with asserting myself in those conversations Mm -hmm. and saying, I think it's perfectly acceptable and okay to be a researcher who is also a practitioner. If nothing else, I can make it more tangible because I can make it relatable, right? Mm -hmm. I can make it something that is actually applicable to people's lived experiences. But I was at a dinner. So our president, our interim president, asked me to attend this faculty dinner. It was me and one other staff member. Everybody else in the room was faculty. They were about... 60, 70 people there, right? Mm -hmm. And they had you um, sit down at a table with other members of the room and answer all these questions. So table talks, right? And the first tabletop question was, can you talk to us about your scholarship and something you wish other people knew about your scholarship? And so for me, what I heard was, you know, what are some what are some modes of excellence for you? Like, what are some things that have helped you to make sure that you're productive? Like, what are some challenges that you've face while doing this work or just what are some unknowns that you haven't had a chance to publish yet, right? The person to my left pointed to the person to my right and was like, oh, well, do you want to go first? What are some things that you wish people knew about your scholarship? And she was like, uh, everybody knows what my scholarship is. Right. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, a, I'm in the dark. I don't even know your name. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so he, he also looked taken aback and he's like, well, I'm and these are all faculty, mind you. So I'm just watching them duke it out, really. I'm not really familiar with the scholarship. If you could talk to me a little bit more about what you do, that'd be kind of cool. Well, if you read the New York Times, you would know that I wrote about this, this, and this. And I recently came out with this book. And I was just looking like, oh, is that what we're leading with? And if anybody, and it kept going, and if anybody here, you know, I think this is a really great place. It's a wonderful opportunity. And if anybody is here and they're they're not really happy here, it's, it just must be because their work is boring. Oh. And I was like, oh, well, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. I just don't I don't agree with that at all. And immediately she said, oh, well, you wouldn't understand you're not faculty. And I looked at her and I said, well, the question I think you misunderstood was talk to us about your scholarship. And no, it didn't say talk to us about faculty life. It said scholarship. And as someone who is on two different national research teams as a co-PI, I can talk to you about my scholarship if that's what you'd like me to do. Also, there are several people on this campus who are faculty, who are talented, are doing engaging work and are miserable here. So Mm -hmm. don't talk to me about what I do and don't understand as a staff member. She She just kept going down this rabbit hole for the rest of the night. My point is it was a very tangible example of how a lot of folks 
feel very free and open to to communicate with staff members who happen to engage research. Oh, they, they'll hyphenate for you or take away the hyphen and the scholar, mm-hmm. like, right? Like they label, yeah. So I've had to go ahead and like submit some of my more recent publications into my bio online here. So I can understand why some people feel obligated or feel... They feel like they have to put that scholar practitioner in there because, you know, you do have uh, several people in the field that are denigrating the experiences or the knowledge base that other people bring to the table. But I don't, I don't have time to play games with people. Mm-mm. That's what's problematic this <laughs> week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so I have these jokes. Filling myself, filling myself, filling myself. They love when I whisper into the mic. I know. Wait, do you see my... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's so, <hear> these jokes. <laughs> okay. So I actually pulled these from a book that I have. I cackle at home sometimes. And Charles is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, mind your business. But it's an F in exams. So it's basically a book about all these exam questions that teachers have disseminated and these random ass answers that they get from their students, Right. So I'm going to see if I can list them off for you and okay. see if you could laugh. Okay. All right. They're, they're great answers, even though they're wrong. <laughs> so in history, upon ascending the throne, the first thing Queen Elizabeth II did was... What? Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> in social studies, what is having only one spouse called... Monogamy? Monotony. <laughs> <laughs> Geography... Name the smaller rivers that run into the Nile. The juveniles. <laughs> <laughs> and then instantly I was like, nine, nine, two thousand. <laughs> Take it over for the nine, nine, and the two thousand. Psychology. Describe what is meant by forgetting. I, I can't forget. remember. Yeah, I can't remember. That's not it. No. That's actually what the student wrote. <laughs> that, that's an okay answer to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was psychology though, so I don't think that's true. <laughs> All right, this was technology. What is hacking? A really bad cough. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have flunked all of them, but still, (laughs) they were super clever. I think the students used their brain and their resources and were very innovative with their answers. I think so, too. I also still think that they failed them on those (laughs) answers. I'm sure they did. But I have more. I'll read them later. Okay. So congratulations to Uchena Baker, the new vice president for student affairs and dean of students at Puget Sound. Rushton Johnson, the new vice president of student affairs at Pellissippi State Community College in Knoxville. Karu Kozuma, the new chief student affairs officer at Amherst College. Sol Gilem, the new director of admissions at Williams College. And Curtis Rice, the new vice president of student affairs at Zula. Leslie Marmon Zilko once said, But sometimes what we call memory and what we call imagination are not so easily distinguished. Our minds and our memories are interesting creations where tangible examples easily melt away, twisting, turning, and dissolving. It is essential for us to center our thoughts, to clearly remember, and to be certain about what we have experienced. Because if we rely on others to tell our stories, to recount our memories, to conjure our thoughts, we will most certainly encounter nothing but examples of imagination rather than fact. This week, please work to be resolute with your memories, to tend to them, and to keep them safe.
Please remember, King B said, always be gracious, best revenge is your paper.